Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the BC healthcare system, the stress and strain that we're seeing on the system right now, and especially the staff shortages that we're seeing uh, at the moment. Got Adrian Gear standing by, president of the BC Nurses Union. Have a listen to the health minister here, Adrian Dick, speaking this week. He says, BC needs more healthcare workers. Have a listen. We have to meet the test, and that test is twofold one of a growing population and one of an aging population. And one of, uh, of needs, and frankly right now, needs that come out of the pandemic. All right, that's the health minister this week. Let's discuss the situation now with my guest, Adrian Gear, president of the BC Nurses Union. I'm very pleased to welcome Adrian to the show. Thank you very much for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me and good morning. <laughs> Good morning to you, and a big shout out to all the BC nurses. Uh, they do. This is a tough job, and I've got nurses who, in my own family, Adrian. So I'm. A, I, I guess I feel a little bit biased, but uh, just a big tip of the hat to all the BC nurses out there. So let's talk about the situation right now. What kind of what kind of shortages are we looking at in the system right now? Well, shortages remain unprecedented. Uh, I'm a, a nurse of 30 years, and it I never seen anything like it. Uh, on a daily basis, many uh, inpatient unit, units run um, short-staffed. Um, in many areas, it's reported at, you know, sort of like 50% of baseline, which means that only half the nurses required to care for the patients on that unit um, are, are rostered that day. And so that makes it very challenging to provide the care that uh, patients require and, and deserve. It's not limited to, you know, bricks and mortar hospitals and facilities. We also are seeing extreme shortages in uh, home and community settings, as well as long-term care. Okay, that's a really extraordinary picture you just painted there. So you're saying that uh, uh, oftentimes there are, you have like 50% of the nurses that you need at any one time? On, on any given unit, on any given day. Yes, that's not wow. necessarily every unit 24-7 uh, yeah. in this province, but certainly many units uh, are running at uh, with like 50% uh, staff that's required. Wow. And then to complicate that further, there's also then patients that are on that unit that are in unfunded beds. So then we're also looking at an overcapacity situation, which I think the public, you know, probably um, has a visual on that if they've ever uh, attended an emergency department where you see, you know, that there's there's simply not enough room for, for patients. And what, what folks are seeing are patients that have been assessed require admission into an inpatient unit, but because there's no room, because they're already over census, uh, patients remain in, in the emergency room department for, for a considerable yeah. period of time. Oh, sure. I think anyone who's been to a hospital has seen the patients on stretchers in the hallway, right? Like, I've talked to nurses who have said, okay, that may not look great if you're on a, on a gurney in a hallway, but that doesn't mean you're receiving substandard care. Is, is that true? Like, I just wonder sometimes if you're, if you're stuck on a, on a stretcher in a hallway, I mean, that's not an ideal situation. I mean, that's not, that's not the best care standard, is it? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, and and yeah. I would certainly agree that nurses continue to go above and beyond, despite the working conditions and, and the workload, to provide the very best care possible. Uh, but it doesn't mean that care doesn't get missed. 
And it doesn't mean yeah. that there's not consequences to that. But uh, absolutely, nurses do everything they can to deliver the care that is required. Yeah. So, so sometimes, though, it, when you're down to 50% of the required staff or you got patients in the hallway, care deteriorates. Would you, would you acknowledge that? Absolutely. Like, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It does. Can you give me some examples of that? Like what kind of things go missing? Like wh what are the missing care pieces here? Well, certainly, you know, medications, um, you know, for yeah. optimums, uh, you know, benefit from medications, they should, they should be provided, you know, at certain times, uh, cer certain intervals, for example. And so medications are often um, late, um, you know, vital signs. So this is really how we're monitoring a patient's status. You know, maybe a yeah. patient should be having vitals done every, you know, one hour or maybe every two hours, or every four hours and, and things like that. You, you just, you just can't meet that demand. Patients yeah. that are perhaps, you know, decompensating, requiring, uh, you know, one-to-one -one nursing, uh, ideally one-to-one -one nursing care, but that's just not possible when you have a, a ward full of patients. You can't just dedicate one nurse to, to a patient. And so, you know, lots of times things are getting missed and, and, and delayed. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to leave people with the impression that there are, you know, severe negative outcomes all the time. Uh, but certainly it's a concern when, uh, you know, you're missing early warning signs and there's an opportunity to intervene, er, you know, early and promptly. Uh, right. Unfortunately, sometimes that that opportunity is lost. Yeah. Speaking to Adrian Gear, president of the BC Nurses Union, talking about the shortage of nurses and other healthcare workers in the system. You mentioned, Adrian, you've worked in the system for a long time. I, I sometimes when we talk about this topic, I get a feeling of kind of deja vu because I remember speaking to your predecessors 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And it, it, I don't know, it always seems like there's always shortages. Would you say right now, though, it, it's worse than it was before? Oh, absolutely. I mean, nursing is a rewarding career, but it's a tough one. And and certainly workload issues have have you know, have always been a concern. Um, the difference is when I graduated in 1993, there was actually a job shortage, right? So there, there weren't enough jobs for nurses. Um, coming out of COVID, uh, you, you know, we haven't seen anything like this in terms of just how short uh, staff we are. Uh, simply stated, there, there has not been a policy in place to ensure that there's been adequate um, training, uh, domestic training of, of uh, nurses. Uh, there hasn't been forecasting. And, uh, you know, the union for years and, and others, uh, you know, in healthcare have been calling out, uh, you know, that we're working short, we don't have enough nurses, and certainly predicted that we would get to this place. I think that, uh, you know, the, the pandemic didn't cause it, but it certainly exacerbated uh, us getting to this place, for sure. Well, uh, but when... I, I, well, when when you say that there hasn't been adequate forecasting, um, what do you mean? Because I know that there, there we, we all know there's lots of administrators in this system. There, there are lots of people working in offices that are supposed to be studying this, aren't they? Aren't they supposed to be projecting and profiling the precise number of nurses we need and, and predicting the de future demands on the system? Are you saying that's not going on or... 
Well, I, I mean, to what extent I, I couldn't comment, but it's obviously not been adequate. And if there have, if yeah. there has been, you know, uh, efforts to forecast, then decision makers, policymakers aren't actually heeding the advice that's being provided. Uh, I yeah. can't say where the breakdown has been. All I can tell you is that the BC Nurses Union for years has been, you know, forecasting that we would we would find ourselves in this place of not having enough uh, nurses in this province to deliver the care for patients. Uh, this is a longstanding problem. And, and you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I certainly am not going to lay blame. Uh, there's enough blame to go around, right? It's it's the current yeah. and past governments, um, you know, certainly in the early 2000s, there were decisions made that certainly has contributed to the mess uh, that we're in now. Do you think we need more foreign trained nurses to, to be certified to practice here in British Columbia? Or do you think we should we can fill the demand with domestically trained people in our own our own colleges and universities? Or do we need foreign trained nurses coming in? Uh, we we absolutely need both. Uh, we yeah. need uh, government to increase the number of domestically trained nurses. And we also have to welcome newcomers uh, to our country and to this province that uh, are, are nurses from, from other areas, other jurisdictions, and, and welcome them to, to our system. We need, we need every nurse. Yeah. Yeah. Last question for you, Agent. Would you say being a nurse is, is a great rewarding job? I'm sure you would say it is. Uh, for someone out there who's thinking like, oh, maybe I'll be a nurse. A nurse sounds like there's a lot of jobs available. Uh, what, what would be the starting salary for a nurse in BC right now? Oh, gosh, you, you put me on the spot there. And, and that's well, it's roughly that ballpark, it's ballpark it for me. Yeah, like I, I think it really depends if you're you're an RN or or an LPN. Um, there's there's different there's different uh, wage uh, grids. Uh, but certainly, yeah. what I can say is that you know nurses, generally speaking, speaking, um, you know have have relatively good compensation. Uh, it's certainly a, a, a profession that, you, you know, there it's in demand, absolutely. And I think the other thing yeah. about nursing is there's so many opportunities, different um, areas uh, in which you can practice. You can certainly, you know, go back to school and and specialize. You can you can go into academia, um, research. Like there, it, it really truly is a wonderful profession. What has to change though, is that the burden of the of the healthcare system and keeping it going can no longer just just be on the shoulder of nurses. Uh, okay. Nurses continue to work short. We we just simply can't do that any longer. And we we really are excited about you know a policy decision that the government has made in in terms of introducing minimum nurse patient ratios. We absolutely mm. need to see that happen in this province. That's what's going to turn things around. Not only will that ensure quality care for, for um, patients, uh, but it means that, uh, you know, when we implement ratios uh, based on what's happened in other jurisdictions, nurses actually come back, uh, come back into the profession. They return. Okay. Uh, and so that's so important. Thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Yeah. All right, let's talk about that viral video that was filmed on the downtown east side and the reaction to it. Now, we've told you about this video on earlier shows. This was done by a very popular American YouTuber. His name is Tyler Oliveira. Just checking out his YouTube channel. He's got like 4 million subscribers on there. And one of the things that he does is he will go into some of these poor neighborhoods, uh, film the situation, especially looking at... 
uh, drug addiction on the streets, homelessness, crime in some of these neighborhoods, and then these views will get these videos will get millions of views. Now, his video on the downtown east side has been viewed ten million times. Ten million views of this video got got uh, Nathaniel Canwell standing by to discuss this. Let's have a listen to the introduction here of this viral YouTube video. Have a listen. This is Vancouver, Canada, a city that made every drug legal, drug addiction, overdoses, homelessness, and crime. The city's goal was to make using drugs safer by making them legal, but many Canadians think it's done the exact opposite. Okay, it's about a 15-minute video. It shows a, a lot of people uh, overdosing on the streets of the downtown east side. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Nathaniel Canwell. Nathaniel is a freelance filmmaker. He also does videos on YouTube. Uh, he did his own video responding to the Tyler Oliveira video, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Nathaniel, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. So, Nathaniel, let's talk about this video here, and I, I'm really interested in your thoughts on it, and especially what you thought when you watched it the, the first time. Let's play another little clip of it here. Now, in this particular sequence of this video, he, this Tyler Oliveira, he's walking through the downtown east side, and he, he describes a drug deal here, and then he describes people chasing after him. Let's have a listen. My surprise, we had just been offered drugs on camera. Okay, we definitely just walked through some, some active drug deals. As we walked away, we started getting dirty looks from those two dealers, but it was clear we could buy drugs on any corner of any block out here in East Hastings. Okay, we're definitely being followed right now. This guy's wrapped in a trash can right here. I mean, this scene is... I mean, you can't... How do you breathe? How do we even know he's alive? Okay, you hear him describing there. He sees someone overdosing on the street and wondering if, if the guy is alive. Okay, Nathaniel, when you watched this for the first time, what did you think of it? Uh, it, it boils my blood, you know, um, it's, it really just, it's like everyone else that, um, kind of comes to film and, uh, obviously just trying to get likes and views and spreading a lot of misinformation, you know, the, the, from the, from the beginning of that in the first second is, is wrong. It's false, right? Um, not all drugs are legal in Canada. That's completely untrue. BC has had, a. uh, uh, an experiment of decriminalization in, in one year. Um, yeah. But drugs are definitely not legal. And and he goes on to spread a lot of other misinformation. But, um, you know, th this is, you're looking at the effects of uh, criminalization and prohibition for over 100 years, right? Like these, that's why you, you're seeing everything, everything that you're seeing. And, um, and, and filming poor people on the street is totally unfair, super unfair. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the video right now online, and the title of the video, Nathaniel, this viral video, is I Investigated the Country Where Every Drug is Legal. And so, like you say, even from the title, uh, this is not accurate. So every drug is not no. legal in Canada. A drug possession has been decriminalized in British Columbia. That, that's a different thing. But now, you you made your own video in in response to this Tyler Oliveira video, and people can watch that on YouTube as well. Let's let's play a clip from that, and then we'll discuss. So this is the clip from Nathaniel's video in response. Okay, let's listen. It was uh, a smear piece. I was really disappointed. It's terrible to think that someone in distress who was having a difficult time was being filmed and put on the internet for likes and clicks. They have family members. They have names. They're people. They're not just throwaways of society. 
Okay, that's a clip from Nathaniel Canwell's video in, in response to the Tyler Oliveira YouTube. And so what was your uh, what was your hope in making that response video, Nathaniel? Just trying to push back on people that, uh, you know, it, like it's a growing trend where people think that it's okay um, to post uh, really, you know, horrific scenes on their social media. Um, and we're seeing it more and more where people are walking down the street and they're pulling out their phones and pulling out their cameras and, and they're filming people at their most vulnerable who, you know, otherwise they don't really have a choice to, to, um, to be there. And uh, yeah. I just want people to know that um, we don't think it's okay. People don't want that, you know? Yeah. So do you see that as like, how would you describe that? Would you say that's what exploitation or would you call that uh, journalism? Would, uh, because, uh, because yeah, a lot. Well, you know, it depends. Like it depends if it's, you know, is there, is it just someone that has like, you know, a few followers or whatever like that and just wants to show like, Hey, look at what my, look at what's happening in my city. Or is it, or is it a YouTuber with, you know, 4 million plus subscribers and, and, and is, is making hundreds of thousands of dollars off of YouTube. Um, it doesn't really matter. The fact is like it, it the, your question was what words would I use to describe that? I would call it, I'd call it um, unethical. I'd call it um, morally wrong. I would call it disgusting. I mean, there's a lot of words I could use to describe what it is uh, to film uh, people who are experiencing extreme uh, difficulties in their life. Yeah, yeah. I'm taking a look at a, a a post that I believe Tyler Oliveira, the guy who made this film, I believe he put this up on uh, Twitter yesterday, and he's addressing the backlash here. And he writes, "If our documentary." prevents a single child from going down the same life path, then I have succeeded. If seeing yourself in a documentary is the push you needed to get sober, you're welcome. So he says that, and then he goes on, hiding the reality of these problems will not solve them. What do you think of that take? Yeah, um, I think a few things. First of all, um, you know, if he, I, I, he saw the video we made, and you would think that for someone that said, hey, look, you made this video, you posted this video about me. It made me feel absolutely horrible. I wish you hadn't done that. And Tyler did not apologize, whatever. Like it, it just showed that he did not, he didn't, he does not care, right? He, he, he didn't want to apologize. And, you know, that to me shows a lot that he doesn't want to care. Um, so you don't believe him. You don't believe him. Like when he's, when no, he no, posts no, here no, that he, do, he does no, it, care. It's, it's a sham. It's a sham, you know? Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, no one, no one is saying don't, don't film, don't, don't show the problems. Yes, we do need to document. We do need to show these problems, but there's a way to show it that is not going to affect the little guy in a negative way. Right. Yeah. So no one's saying don't, don't film just there's ways to do it ethically. And, mm -hmm. and I've filmed all over the world in some of the most marginalized communities. And I, I've never once had a problem because I've always um, come at it with respect and dignity for the people that are, that are suffering the most. Yeah. Speaking of Nathaniel Canwell, Nathaniel is a filmmaker. We're talking about the viral YouTube video from Tyler Oliveira, 10 million views on YouTube of, of the conditions on the downtown east side. Uh, let's listen to Michael Manitoba, downtown east side resident. He was filmed in the Tyler Oliveira video uh, going through a, a really horrifying looking uh, drug overdose. It appeared to be a drug overdose. And then you hear him 
uh, describing what he what it felt like to see himself in this in this YouTube video. It's almost like he's a different guy because after the drug overdose that was filmed, it was horrifying looking. And then he's, I was amazed. He just looks like a different individual here. And I believe he's speaking to you here. Let's have a listen to him, Michael Manitoba. It's devastating, obviously. Um, I feel horrible, basically, thinking that uh, millions, literally millions of people have viewed that, seen me at my worst. He said, millions of people saw me at my worst. He found it a horrifying experience. I, I believe, Nathaniel, you talked to him, right? Yeah, I think that's the quote from um, CTV. Um, oh, okay, did, okay. We did a, after we did the video, CTV um, did a story on that video. And yeah. he spoke with the journalist, um, Isabella's uh, last name is, I'm forgetting. But uh, yeah, I mean, imagine uh, you at your very worst moment and someone without your understanding um, recording it and posting it online. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's an overdose or arguing with your wife or you know what I mean? A, 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 yeah. It's a medical emergency. Imagine having a medical emergency and 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 it being filmed and posted to YouTube. So what you know? do you think? How should this be done? Like you mentioned, you're a filmmaker yourself. You've you've done videos in the neighborhood as well. Do you think like if you're going to film street scenes, you should not show people's faces or like how would you approach it? Uh, well, normally, like what I do is when I'm in a vulnerable community, I'm normally following a subject. And um, if people see that you're with someone, especially who's a local, and you're filming them, then generally that's that's okay, right? Um, mm. But um, going up to people that are in vulnerable situations and filming them without the permission—that is the, the. I would, you know, I'd rather put down the camera than than do something like that, right? Um, mm. So you know, the camera is a really powerful tool, right? And there's, I think there there's ways to use it. Um, that are extremely um, helpful and ways that are extremely uh, harmful. Yeah, and, I guess uh, what Tyler, what Tyler Oliveira is saying is that he says that, and I, I acknowledge, man, he's making a lot of money off of this. I mean, let's not fool ourselves. This is a money making exactly. uh, yeah. operation that he's running here. He gets money from YouTube views, ten million of them. That's a lot of money, and he also appeals for donations on on his Patreon account. So yep. this is about money. Let's not fool ourselves here. Now, he also says, though, that what he's trying to show are the conditions on the street since decriminalization of drug possession, which he calls drug legalization. As you pointed out, that's not accurate. But we have seen decriminalization of drug possession in, in British Columbia, the only province to do it. And we're nearly we're close to a year into this now of decrim. So, Nathaniel, like, you know, you've been down there a lot. Do you think it's gotten better or worse? since decriminalization because it looks worse to me um and you know i get asked this question a lot uh, have yeah. things gotten worse um i i was born in the raised uh born and raised on the east side um i you know i left for a number of years and and uh and, and i'm back living here again um things have always been bad skid row has always been really bad there's more people you know our the population has grown considerably uh, and so, you know, the, the, there are more, you can see that the, uh, there are more and more problems. Um, but, you know, this, uh, I, I think that, uh, you don't, you don't think decriminalization has made it worse though. Um, I, the, you know what, the, the thing that has made it worse is that we have an unregulated drug market that is running 24 seven in this country. Um, you know, you, are able to get any kind of substance at any time of the day, um, 
in, in this country because we have a criminalized drug market. And that's, that is the issue, right? The issue is that we have failed drug policies in this country. That is, yeah. that is what is showing us um, what we see on the street, okay. right? Everyone is, everyone is fed up with seeing what we're seeing, right? No one wants to mm. see people um, sleeping in parks, doing drugs on the street. No one wants to see that, right? It's all fed right. up. Those people don't want to be there doing that, right? I think we can all agree that it's that this system is horribly broken and we're trying to come up with uh, new alternatives. We need to come up with a new system. We have to come up with ideas um, to, to, to fix what's so severely right. broken. You know, the war on drugs, a catastrophic failure, right? So how, how are we going to approach uh, some, a new system to try and fix what's obviously so, uh, okay. so broken? You know what I mean? And, sure, and sure. D Kramer was like, okay, let's get that. You know, that was supposed to give a break to the justice system, right? Having cops don't want to have to pick up guys for, um, you know, minor possession, right? And uh, and and even that has been a failure because then the municipalities then they they brought back into oh you can't uh, you can't do drugs in parks and um, you know the cops um, really had a lot to say about in terms of the thresholds how much people are able to carry so it's been it's been a battle in terms of actually getting it rolled out properly but in my opinion decrim was never going to fix anything it was not it's not going to stop the drug overdose okay. death. It's not going to stop a lot of the major issues that we're, we're facing. Nathaniel, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great talking to you. All right. Why are Canadian students doing poorly in math, reading, and science? According to this brand new international report just issued this week, Canadian student achievement here showing a steep decline in the last few years, especially in mathematics. Now, this report also indicates other countries experiencing a, a similar decline as well. This does not look good for Canada here, for sure. I got Tara Hull standing by to discuss here. Have a listen to Anna Stocky on yesterday's show. Anna is a mathematics professor at the University of Winnipeg. Here's what she had to say to me yesterday. Since 2003, we've actually seen a, a 35 point decline. That's a, at the Canada level. In some oh. provinces, it's much higher than others. And that's actually quite a large de decline. Like PISA actually reckons 41 points to be about one year of schooling. Okay, 35 point decline in math scores here in Canada. Let's discuss now with my guest, Tara Hull. Tara is a uh, BC parent and an education advocate, very passionate about mathematics in our school system. Hi, Tara. Thanks for coming on again. Good morning, Michael. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. So, Tara, when we take a look at this report here, a 35-point decline in math scores among Canadian kids. This was a, a based on standardized tests of 15-year-olds compared to other countries around the world, other countries also seeing a, a decline in scores. Tara, what's going on here? Does this surprise you? No, uh, it's what we expected. <laughs> and... Um... Just to add insult to injury, after um, Anna's numbers yesterday, here in British Columbia, we've had a 42-point loss in that same time period. So we've actually lost worse ground than um, the Canadian average. 
Um, and basically, according to um, what we're seeing is that kids back in 2003 were at least a year ahead with their mouth um, development than students are today. Um, that's, that's, that's terribly shocking. Another part I just wanted to comment on, uh, the other thing that uh, PISA measures is to find out what's happening with uh, children's development of their understanding of math at the 15-year-old level. Um, <clears throat> so what we're seeing is that um, kids that are at the lowest end of the scale, um, we've seen a 230% increase in the number of students that are graduating who are barely function functionally numerate. Okay, as in comparison to where they were in 2003 and whereas on the other side of the scale, where were the kids, the, the brightest kids when it comes to their math development, that has at least almost um, cut, and cut in half to 12 percent. So this is this is alarming. It's shocking. Um, probably the most shocking bit of all is that in provinces where we started sounding the alarm bells um, over 10 years ago about uh, math scores declining. There have been some provinces which have taken um, done the right thing by turning it around by implementing some of these um, the proper um, ways to teach math, the proper ways to um, strengthen the curriculum, such as what um, Hannah Stocky has been, you know, uh, trying to harbor for the last uh, decade. Whereas in British Columbia, we've gone the exact opposite direction, and our performance is reflecting as a reflection of that. You know, the people in charge decided here in British Columbia. The reforms that they wanted to bring in over a decade ago, um, they wanted it to be based rather on some kind of an ideological press rather than on evidence-based reforms, and our um, performance is reflective of that. Okay, do you think that, let's dig into that a little bit, because this is something I discussed with Hannah yesterday, and she agreed that there needs to be a kind of a back-to-basics approach especially when it comes to teaching mathematics. So she talked a lot yesterday about memorization. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid, you, you were always asked, do you know your times tables? Do you know, have you memorized some of this stuff? Memorization in school seems to have a bad rap now, um, but she seemed it's, to think that was the right way to go. Go ahead, Tara, what your thoughts? It, she goes on what the evidence suggests is the best way. And that is the strength behind somebody like Anna, who has been sounding the alarm for years and is the point person for proper math instruction in this country. Because she's written a commentary about this where she laid out exactly what needs to happen based on evidence-based methods and on the, the correct methodology when it comes to math instruction. She's also a mom to kids. She's also a math professor, so she sees what um, graduates from the K-12 system and they land in her class and they're, they're struggling. And this has become worse over the years. So what she's highlighted are some very basic steps, which, again, British Columbia has turned away from. And some of these steps include better instruction, which includes memory work, mastering, daily practice, regular quizzes and exams. There's a tr um, we need tougher curriculum outcomes, whereas in British Columbia, we've gone the other way. We've taken away a lot of the learning standards that we used to have in elementary school that have not been passed on in middle school. Um, she's also calling for a licensure exam for all teacher candidates before they're being allowed to teach in schools, which I personally believe this is this needs to happen because any teacher in any classroom at any time should be able to um, teach basic math. And the other thing that we have taken away from in this province, which needs to be reinstated, are provincial exams and more standardized assessment, because we need to determine um, where the accountability lies, as well as where improvements need to be made with our kids. 
And we've already seen through student polls over the last few years that by and large, the number one subject where students are struggling the most is with mathematics. And it's just yeah. being completely shoved under the carpet and uh, nobody in power seems to know, know what's going on or they don't want to acknowledge that this is a problem. And it has been left up to parents to try and fix it. Um, there was a lovely caller uh, yesterday, I heard on your show, um, a mom, and you could hear the frustration in her voice because she was struggling with um, her son who was trying to take pre-calculus. He'd show up for class and was instructed to watch YouTube videos. That's not how you teach pre-calculus. And this mom, I mean, we can't all afford, you know, $500,000 a month for tutoring. And it shouldn't be how expected. Much, how much a month? Much. How much a month? Five, it depends. I mean, some places, if you have more than one kid, you need to pay double the, the tutoring amount. So it could be up to $500 a month. could yeah. be $1,000 a month. Yeah. And that's, but it shouldn't be up to parents to educate our children. This is what the BCTF is supposed to be providing. And they're failing in their job, along with all the other education partners. We're letting our kids down. And this is not something that we want to create world-class mathematicians. We're talking okay. about knowing how to use long division so they can pass algebra. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the standardized testing that you touched on there, Tara, because a, a lot of these results that we saw this week on in this international report these these scores are based on standardized tests that have been administered to 15-year-olds. Here in British Columbia, we have the Foundation Skills Assessment Test uh, twice twice in the public school system as kids go through the public school system. My kids did these tests, and the BC Teachers Federation and others have criticized these tests, feel that they're unfair, feel that they stress kids out, that they produce test anxiety, that... It forces teachers to teach to the test rather than effectively right. teach kids. So we all know the these arguments. Let me play a clip. I talked to Anna Stocky about this yesterday on the show, math professor, Uni University of Winnipeg. I asked her about this concept of test anxiety on these standardized tests. Do we need more tests? Do we need more standardized tests? Here's what she had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. If If someone actually really does have test anxiety... The worst thing to do is to avoid tests. How will they ever overcome that? And you know, the, they're going to have all sorts of situations in their lives where they're going to be tested on things. And so that is not a good remedy for test anxiety. In fact, you probably need more exposure to tests. Tara, your thoughts? It's common sense. I mean, this, she's absolutely correct. And I, I, I'll just share maybe with you and your listeners a uh, conversation I had with the teacher um, this morning. Um, I was just made aware, apparently now with the new grade nine reporting, um, this teacher was just uh, was saying that they are no longer allowed in this school to fail students in grade nine. If a school does fail a student in grade nine, they will not get the funding moving forward for putting them back into another grade nine course. So what does that say about mm -hmm you know, you know, accountability. I mean, and, and the other, the, the main thing that we need to ensure that students aren't falling through the cracks, uh, the, the, the cracks are tests or assessments or quizzes. And the fact that the organization as a whole, like the BCTF, like the province, like everybody else who is removing exam weeks, who is taking up provincial exams, who says that teaching to the test is a bad thing, does, is trying to elude away from the fact that this is something that is called count, accountability. It, it exists in every other aspect of our society. 
but most significantly, it is needed for children to determine that they are learning in schools. Tara, it's always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. You're welcome and Merry Christmas to you, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.